All right. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. All right. We made it. We made it. So uh, we have been looking forward to this day through Advent. Tyler. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, so we have been lighting our Advent wreath, um, looking forward to this day. So we have, once again, the chance to light the hope candle that Christ is our one and only hope. The out of lighter fluid candle. All right. <laughs> the peace candle. The joy candle. And the love candle. Now we light all of these candles knowing that these, these are guarantees to us in Christ. That we have a hope. We have a peace. We have immense joy that Christ has come and we know the love that, that is beyond ourselves as Norma said last week but those only matter because of Christ that those can become just kind of a, a warm fluffy thing that we hope to happen but because of the Christ candle all of these things are a guarantee for us Amen, Amen. and we have these things not just as uh, a looking back on these things, Christ is going to come again. And that's why we do Advent. We do Advent because people waited the first time and they were not disappointed. Christ came. The Messiah came. The long-awaited Messiah came to be with his people. And Christ is coming again. That we'll have a better joy and peace and hope and joy than even we have now. So, Merry Christmas. We made it through Advent. This is an exciting time. But now, let's open our Bibles. Turn to Matthew 2. And we'll jump into our sermon. So each Christmas, we are invited once again to behold Jesus. To behold Jesus. Last night, I keep wanting to say last week, but no, last night, Hasn't been that long. Uh, last night we talked about the first visitors to behold Jesus. We talked about the shepherds. And we talked about how they were unlikely people to be chosen to receive this king. That they were the outcasts, the social outcasts, and, and the rejected among the people. So for the angels to come to them and invite them to behold Jesus, that is a big deal. But now we talk about a second group of people that come to visit Jesus. Today we're talking about the Magi. We're talking about their visit. And if the shepherds were unlikely visitors to Jesus, then the Magi are going to be as well. My hope is that we get to see these unlikely worshipers and that it would help us to reflect upon our own worship. That the Magi came and worshiped Jesus with fullness of heart and joy and we also see the unfortunate example of Herod and the people of Jerusalem who failed to worship. Who, though they are privy to the same exact news, do not worship, but actually turn against this king. So, I would ask us to, to recognize that we have an immense treasure in Christ. An immense blessing in Christ. And we can respond in turn or we can ignore that. And I would call us to, for our own joy this Christmas, to embrace the treasure of Jesus Christ, that he is our greatest joy, our greatest treasure. So let's read Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. 
Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Join me in prayer. Father, as we think of this story, we ask that it may not be just a story, but that it may inform our worship. Father, as these magi come and present their treasures to you, we ask that you would give us hearts to treasure Christ and to present our own treasures as well. Father, work by your spirit to renew us by your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so... Let's jump in by starting with these unlikely visitors. Look at verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now the first question is, who are these guys? Who are these wise men, as we would call it? I'm going to push us on this a little bit. Uh, if you look at it, look at your text, and you'll see that when it says wise men, there's a little number in the corner. Now, in Sunday school, we're learning to notice all of these little details, to learn the Bible for ourselves and read it for ourselves. And there's actually little footnotes. We probably maybe never even noticed that, but yeah, there are. And it says, to look down, it says in the Greek, this says magi. Now, it's not the Greek word. That's what it says in the English, according to the Greek. So we have to ask another question. What is a magi? What is a magi? And I think if we're really straightforward with what it says, a magi is a magician, kind of a sorcerer. Now, oddly enough, that's not how it's usually translated because I don't think it's really sociably acceptable for a bunch of magicians to come see Jesus. And the, and the translators, I think, feel a little bit of unease with that. But this is the same word that's talked about in Acts 9 with Simon the magician, who actually does works of magic. This is the same word that's used in, what is it, Acts 13, Elemas, the magician. Like, it's, it's very clear, actually. 
The thing is that this is supposed to be shocking. We talked about the shepherds being shocking. Now these guys, the magicians, are shocking. Because if you're a magician, you're like the straight-up enemy of God. Because how do you get magical powers? You get magical powers by being united to demons, being a child of Satan. That's the only way you're getting magic in God's kingdom. And so we have to recognize that this is the equivalent in our day of a bunch of Wiccans coming in off the street and sitting with us this Christmas service. It's shocking. It's surprising. But that's, that's what it would be. All right, but they're not just magi. That's bad enough. But they're also from the east. From the east. Now, if we know our Bibles well, that's actually not good news. But if you're from the east, that means you're a foreigner, first of all. We don't like foreigners here in Israel. And you don't like the ones from the east, especially. Uh, it, if you have to do your, your Bible trivia nerd stuff, the Edomites, the Ammonites, all these ite guys. Tyler, go all five right now. <laughs> uh, so these are all these, those weird named tribes. And the thing you need to know about them is that they were idolatrous and they were constantly at war with Israel. That's, that's what you need to know about them. These are not happy, friendly guys. Other people from the east, the Assyrians, who destroyed the northern Israel, Israel tribes, who kind of wiped out 75% of Israel. And then we have, on top of the Assyrians, we have the Babylonians who destroyed the temple, who destroyed all of Jerusalem. People from the east are not, are not good guys. And when they show up in Jerusalem, no one's excited to see them. This is kind of unsettling. And yet, why are they here? They are here to worship. Of all people, they are invited to worship. That's what they say. Why have you come? We have come to worship him. Now, that is surprising. And we wonder, why could these, would these men, of all people, come to worship the king of the Jews? I think we're going to have to table that for a little bit because the text doesn't tell us right away. But in the very least, we know that God sent them. That God prophesied long ago that this would happen in Isaiah 60, verses 2 and 3, which Eli read for us in the midst of the ooze. So, uh, for behold... Darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. Essentially what this is saying is that God is going to visit Israel. And he'll bring his glory to that nation, and the whole world is going to be drawn in that everyone is going to see this glorious light and just can't keep away from it. And then they come flocking to this place. It's a prophecy of the coming of the glory of the Lord. And this is a big deal. This is the reverse of all of the darkness, all of the oppression, all of the terrible things that Israel has been through. That God is finally visiting his people and glorifying them. And so the, the news of this magi these foreigners should be a joyful news for the people of Israel. They should be super excited. This is the prophecy being fulfilled. But we see this odd reaction that they have to it. Notice what 
what it says in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why was he troubled? You could guess that maybe they were troubled because they don't want these kind of people in their town, that these aren't the best kind of visitors. But I think that that's not actually the best interpretation. They seem to be getting along with them just fine. They're helping them out. They're showing them how to get where they need to go. They're actually using them in a sense, not, not afraid of them. I think instead we see that, first of all, Herod, Herod is troubled that there's a new king in town. Because there is already a king of the Jews and it is King Herod. And as a result of his position, he has a certain amount of clout. So to have Jesus come into town, that means a demotion for King Herod. That means he's going to lose all of the things that he holds most dear. His treasures, his power, his wealth, his honor. And as a result, he does not worship. He cannot worship. But Jesus doesn't mean a blessing for him. Jesus means a loss. Now, I think we have to think about that for a second. And ask ourselves, is that how we respond to Jesus at times? Is Does Jesus mean the loss of something? Does it mean the loss of our satisfaction or our free choice that we get to do what we want to do? That maybe we don't get to be the lords of our little kingdom anymore, but Jesus has come. I think if that's holistically how you think of Jesus, you will not be able to worship him. You'll be resentful towards Jesus. And you'll drag yourself to church each week and drag yourself through Bible studies knowing that it's a sacrifice and you're not sure what you're getting out of it. That's how Herod comes to this. And he, he cannot worship the Lord. So maybe we know what that feels like to be Herod. But why are the people of Jerusalem troubled? That's odd to us. Why would they be troubled? Well, it says that they're troubled with Herod. They're actually following their king. That their king doesn't want to worship Jesus, and so they're kind of swept away with their king. And if you're going to identify with someone in the story, we probably shouldn't identify too much with King Herod because he's a ruler. He's not really... He's not an everyday person, but these are the everyday people. These are the everyday people of Jerusalem, just like you are the everyday people of the church. And so when you look at these people, you should say, what am I supposed to learn from them? And I think you need to learn that you will go the way of your king. You will go the way of your king. That whoever you give authority to, whoever you give uh, your rule to, your power to, you're going to follow in their way. You're going to follow in their footsteps. And so you have a choice to be made. Every single day you can choose who you are going to let be your king. Are you going to let the kings that do not worship the Lord be your king? Are they, they going to lead you in how you should worship? We have to make that choice each day. And that choice might be the choice between the kingdoms of the world, things like sex or power or money, all of these things that would lead you astray. 
or are you going to follow King Jesus? These are things that call for great wisdom. Because it seems like the people here have settled for the status quo. They've settled for King Herod. Which if we understand what this means, like, they're out of their minds. What does it mean to be content with the kingdom they are in, in right now? Well, King Herod isn't even a real king. He's a puppet king of the Roman Empire. So they're submitting to that. They're settling with a foreign oppressive king. And on the other hand, they're settling with the powers of the religious rulers. They're enslaved to the law. These kind of bitter, joyless, religious men. That is the kingdom that they're currently in. And yet, that's where they want to be. They seem to have settled with that kingdom. Now, we can only speculate as to why. Maybe they were scared to kind of challenge the system. They had a certain comfort and comfortability with this king and this kingdom. But in that apathy, they miss out on the kingdom of the Messiah. And that's a good kingdom. Right? Because we can focus on, oh, like this is not a very good kingdom that they stay in. But they're also missing this great kingdom. This is a kingdom where, where God himself is king. The one true king who is worthy to rule. And in a kingdom where every single person knows the Lord and has the Holy Spirit with them, has a heart that longs to, to worship the Lord and to obey him, where just grace and mercy and joy are overflowing. That's the kingdom that they're missing out on by settling with the kingdoms of the world. Now I hit this hard because if these are the people that we are to connect with, these people have failed in that mission. They have identified with King Herod as opposed to King Jesus. And so... They follow the way of King Herod. And what does King Herod do? Verse 4. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he had inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now they tell him it's going to be in Bethlehem. And he essentially sets up a plan to, to destroy Jesus. That Herod, because Jesus is going to take the things he most prizes and treasures, he's going to destroy this new king. We have to say that if you primarily see Jesus as a threat to your treasures, a threat to the things you hold most dear, you're going to be constantly at war with Jesus. You're going to constantly be not just rejecting him, but, but actually standing against him. And when you're in that situation, when you're fighting with Jesus over treasures, if you're kind of holding on to these things, Jesus is the king. And he has every right to take those things from us. To pry them from our, our sweaty palms. But he, he will, and he does. We know all too well that he does. That there is no standing up against this king. All right, so that is, that is what we're not supposed to do. Let's, let's figure that out clear. All right, so don't do that. Um, so we have a better option. We have a better option and we see this in the Magi. 
that the Magi, they get it and they go off to worship this King Jesus. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. All right, that's how you respond to Jesus, right? Rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And these are, they're like actually happy. This is the complete opposite of Herod and the people they can rejoice that those who have Christ are, are the joyful ones. We saw that in the shepherds. And if we're to be anything, we're to be a joyful people. But we can too often, I think all of us can resent Jesus. And the reality is that he, he should give us great joy. And in verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. These men come to worship Jesus. And it doesn't seem like they're just trying to manipulate Jesus, trying to get on Jesus' good side. We can think that like, oh, like they're just bribing Jesus. It doesn't seem like that. It seems like this is true heartfelt worship. That they are giving their treasures, not asking for treasures in return. So what does it mean that they come and give these gifts to Jesus? He's the God of the universe. He clearly doesn't super need gifts. So what does it mean? What does it mean that they bring these things? Well, first of all, what is frankincense and myrrh? I, I honestly forget every single year and have to look it up again. So, uh, <laughs> so to help us remember, Kim actually brought in frankincense and myrrh. So if it smelled kind of interesting in the, in the lobby, that is frankincense and myrrh. It's a, it's a fragrance. So what you do is you, you cut open certain trees, get the sap out, and then turn that into incense. Is that right, Kim? Essentially? All right. <laughs> oh, I didn't try to do that. Sorry. I apologize for the bad pun. Um, all right, so this is, uh, this is incense. It's fragrance. So these kings come with incense and with gold. Incense and gold. Now, where do we see incense and gold in other places in the Bible? The temple worship. Temple worship and tabernacle. Gee, this guy, he should become a preacher. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it, it's used in temple worship. That's where you see it. That's what you bring to... Actually, it, a lot of the prophecies talk about the nations bringing the gifts into the temple bringing them to Jerusalem. And so it's kind of weird that they, they don't bring it to Jerusalem. They instead bring it to Jesus. Now, there's a lot of symbolism here, but this is Jesus as the temple. Jesus as God dwelling with his people. And they're bringing their gifts to Jesus. They're bringing it to the temple to worship Jesus as God present with man. And that, I think, helps us understand why these magi are so excited. Because if there's one person who's not going to get into the temple in Jerusalem, it's foreign magicians. Right? They, are, they are definitely not allowed. And that 
the Jews had kind of shut the doors to the temp of the temple to a lot of people. And God himself had made strict rules that if you were unclean, you couldn't go. If you were a quote-unquote sinner, you weren't allowed in. If you had leprosy, you couldn't go. If you were a foreigner, you couldn't go. And so for the first time, these magi are able to worship the true God. They're able to go into the presence of God and stand before the God of the universe and worship him. Now that is why these men are so excited. They would have never had that chance before and here they have that chance in Jesus. And that's why we get excited too because we have that chance to worship at Jesus' feet now. That none of us would be allowed in the temple. And with all of our sin, we're not allowed to go into the true temple, the heavenly temple. But in Jesus we are. In Jesus, we get to worship God, and he's the only one who lets us through. That is why he came, so that he could do that for us. All right, so there's a lot of good symbolism there. A lot of good symbolism there. But let's also make it really simple. What does the text say? The text says that, that they gave of their own treasures, that they opened their treasures. And so in a sense, the gifts... The gifts, on one hand, have all this symbolic meaning, but then there's this also really simple meaning. And the fact is that these men are giving their treasures to Jesus. The things that are most valuable to them, they foot, put at the feet of Jesus. And that's where there's, there's also another really symbolic, poignant meaning here is that, and I wouldn't have understood it. I had to go to John Piper. He, he explained it for me. Uh, what John Piper says is that by putting their treasures at the feet of Jesus, they're better able to worship him. That by cutting out all of these false treasures, they have more room in their hearts to treasure Jesus Christ. That by casting off all these other things, they're able to see that, no, Jesus is the true and real treasure. And so it's not just that they're trying to buy off Jesus. No, it's that they would treasure him more, that they would love him more, that they would value him more. And notice how different this is than Herod. Herod is clinging to his treasures, knowing that one day they will all be torn away from him. He cannot keep them in the end. And then there is the Magi, and what are they doing? They're casting their treasures before Jesus and getting something more valuable in return, Jesus himself. So to ask you this Christmas, is Jesus a threat to your treasures or is he your greatest treasure? There's one of, he's one of those two things. And it's my job to make sure that you see that Jesus is your greatest treasure. Which I feel a heavy burden with because I often don't feel like Jesus is my greatest treasure. And I, so I felt like I was wrestling with that this week and thinking about this is that oftentimes I can find myself dwelling on all the difficult things that Christ asks of us. Because he does ask a lot. There's a, there's a high price to be 
in relationship with Christ. That he demands all of our love, our unfailing, undivided love. He expects us to worship with heart and soul and mind and strength, with all of our being. He expects our obedience, our submission, our humility, right? That one's hard fought. He expects all these things. And sometimes we can get bogged down and we can get resentful and feel like, I, I can, feel like, well, God, like, I feel like you, you ask so much of us. And when that happens, we lose our heart of worship. We lose sight of the fact of, of how valuable he is. So that's when we're called to go back to Jesus and get ourselves right and think, wait, no, no. Why, why is Jesus so valuable? What did he do for us? And we go back and see that Jesus Christ gives himself to us. And when we remember who Jesus is, who is Jesus? Jesus is, he's our savior as we talked about last night. He is our, our truest, greatest, most faithful friend. He's our true and only true spouse. He is our, our greatest love. He is our Lord as well. He is our king. He's our defender. He's our victor. Jesus is all of these things. And when he gives himself to us, he gives us everything that he has rightfully earned for us. He gives us the cross. He gives us his death. His death for sin. His victory over Satan and over evil. And then he gives us his life, his resurrection life, and he gives us his new creation body. He gives us a new power over sin. He gives us all the benefits of redemption. Justification, the fact that you don't have to feel guilty with God ever again. He gives us sanctification. The fact that we who are anything but holy are declared to be holy. He gives adoption. That we who have no right to be sons and daughters of God. Yeah, adoption. <laughs> we are adopted into God's family. Because Jesus gives that to us. All of these benefits are true of Christ, of us because of Christ giving himself to us. And I hope that, that that shakes us out of whatever funk we're in and thinking that Jesus just came to take. No, he came to give and give abundantly. He came to be our greatest treasure. And as we throw those treasures at Jesus and cast them down, we'll find that we have far more in return. And that all of our, our treasures are only treasures if they are found in Christ. That he actually redeems them and makes them what they're supposed to be. So then this Christmas, I would say, how can you treasure Jesus? Treasure Jesus. Cast off all of these would-be treasures. We can be distracted by a lot of good things, very, very good things in this season and miss the fact that Jesus is the greatest one.